Welcome to Chit Chat Stocks. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer analyze businesses and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Stocks is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Stocks by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, we are trying again. I believe this is live. We can cut it for the podcast, but we're going to test and see if it's loaded up on YouTube for the Investing Power Hour number 98. If not, we might have to go back to the old setting. So let's see. See, is it showing up? Is it showing up? Hey, I think it's there, but it's showing up with the old. Yeah, it's showing up with the old name. Oh, Riverside, what are you doing? All right, well, it's there. Okay, well, let's just get started. Let me talk talk through the old intro here that we can cut out that old part. This is the Investing Power Hour number 98 on Chit Chat Stocks. My name is Brett Schaefer, and as always, I am joined by Ryan Henderson. I think the name here, maybe I can change it midway through but we have one person joining tyler as always says it's live apologies to anyone joining the live part but we can't get this naming thing to sync up with the riverside software uh otherwise it's been a beautiful new little tool we have so it says number 97 while we're live but that's really irrelevant for any of the listeners here it's number 98 or excuse me it says yeah it says 97 but it is 98 guess it really doesn't matter we'll change that title later yeah the big 100 98, 99, 100, two, two more after the, or one more after this one, but two more, including this one. We're talking a lot of stuff today, really anything in the financial markets. There was a lot of fun news pieces. Thank you for all the journalists leaking stuff to the public about, about businesses and their plans. It looks like we got some lift earnings. Uh, people probably saw that typo that caused some crazy after hours reporting and we're going to talk a lot of other stuff but before we get started ryan why don't you tell the listeners about our good friends over at public.com yeah let's do it so you might know public.com as the all-in-one investing platform but they have now launched options trading and with it they're doing something that no other broker has ever done before and no other brokerage has ever done before public is sharing 50 percent of their options trading revenue directly with you the customer so whenever you trade options on public you get something back and of course there are no commissions or per contract fees either by sharing 50 percent of their options revenue you'll know exactly how much they make from your options trade because public is literally giving you half of it so in other words, it's a more transparent approach to options with no fees and you get something back on every single trade. So go to public.com and activate options trading by March 31st to lock in your lifetime rebate. And it's public.com slash chit chat. Uh, actually, I believe it's been changed to chit chat stocks now. Um, if you want to use our code, this is uh, paid for by public investing. You must activate your options account by March 31st for revenue share. Options are not suitable for all investors and carry significant risk. Full disclosures in the podcast description, US members only. Yeah, let's let's talk news for the week. I think we should kick things off with Lyft. 
because boy, was that a fun blunder. And actually, there's some galaxy brain conspiracy theories out there that this was not an accident. And it's an interesting <laughs> idea because okay, it does. You... Okay, so let's let's go through what happened. Go through it, yeah. For anyone that doesn't follow the markets, anyone that didn't hear about this, there was a press release. I guess I should give some context about Lyft. Lyft, part of a duopoly technically in the ride-sharing space in North America, but really Uber's become the dominant player. And Lyft is, I don't want to say on the verge of, not really on the verge of bankruptcy, but I remember looking at it and thinking they got to get to profitability sooner rather than later, and it's tough for them to do. So this year, or this last quarter, they put out a press release that guided for 500 basis point, which is 5%, 5 percentage points, margin expansion on EBITDA. So they're expecting their profit margins, however you want to define it, they are using EBITDA in this case to expand by five percentage points. That's huge for a company that's priced like Lyft was. Uh, and the stock jumped, I believe, as high as 64% after hours. So that tells you kind of what how big this news was. In the conference call following the press release, the CEO, it actually took quite a while before they mentioned it in the conference call, said there was a typo. It's not 500 basis points. It's 50 basis points, which is huge. And it wiped out a big percentage of the after hours gains that Lyft was seeing. I want to pull up the direct quote because the CEO, uh, Risher, I can't remember his first name. Uh, the CEO of Lyft went on afterward, went on CNBC to kind of clarify things. He said, well, first of all, it's on me. There are a lot of eyes on this press release, but at the end of the day, my bad. It was a clerical error. The buck stops with me. And to be very clear, this was, this, it was a bad error, but it was one zero in a press release. So this was huge in, in terms of moving the stock. The quarter was still okay for Lyft and the stock actually still did pretty well after the earnings report. However, this does frighten a lot of short sellers. And here's where kind of the conspiracy theory thinking goes is this accidental typo, this clerical error gets rid of a lot of short sellers. Yeah. And potentially, uh, I don't know, I guess, I don't know what sort of implications that has long term, but if you're trying to get rid of short sellers, putting a typo in there that makes your stock jump 50% and then saying, whoops, an hour later, it's maybe one way to go about it. And honestly, props to the team because it was if that was the strategy, it's securities manipulation, but it's brilliant. Yeah doesn't change the business at all. I did not look at the quarter, I guess. Did you look at that at all? Seems like they're making some progress, but it's adjusted no. to stuff. I guess they're heavy on SBC, so the cash flow is getting a little bit better, but how much shareholder value is getting created, I don't know. Hey, I we did a I think we may have called the bottom last week when we were shocked at how different the market caps were between Uber and Lyft, where Uber was 150 billion, Lyft was only 5 billion. And since then, I think I updated it today. Lyft's market cap 
like three or four billion dollars, which I mean that, that's a that's a huge change. Congrats to anyone that's been a shareholder of Lyft. That's all I'll say. Yeah, that, I mean, it was priced pretty poorly, and if you were, if you were able to really think that they could get to profitability, I think the payout was there to be had. Uh, there are some other news pieces, some other things I found this week that I think are a little more interesting, though. I want to talk about Dorsey Asset Management. There, it's 13F season too, aka confirmation by a season, and I I actually like looking at 13Fs for certain investors. I think it's fun. It's serves as a decent idea or a decent idea generator for long-term focus funds where they tend to buy and hold things. But I love when people look at Michael Burry's and they're like, oh, look what's going on. It's like, you don't know when he bought it. He could have sold out of it already. There's so much like, there's so much trading going on in some of those portfolios that it's just, I think, worthless to look at some of those 13Fs. Also, the like biggest position, he uses options, and options can really distort your 13Fs, which it's, uh, I don't know, kind of makes their, their 13Fs irrelevant. But there are a couple investors that I like to look at. Pat Dorsey is probably one of them. I kind of dug into his background a little more this week. Fun, fun guy to listen to. Chuck Acri. I always like to look at Acri's holdings. He's not really managing his fund anymore, I don't think, but um, I like their approach at that firm. So that's another one I'll look at. Is there? Do you look at any and actually use them for generating potential ideas? Uh, the only one I've been looking at is Drunken Miller's. I can never say it right. Drunken Miller, because I want to see when he's going to sell Nvidia. So far, sold a little bit. So. I, my hot take will be that he is out of the position next 13F. But besides that, I don't look at much. I guess I look at, oh wait, one more is I look if Buffett still owns, or excuse me, Berkshire still owns Ally Financial. Because if they sold out of that, it'd be quite concerning for me. Yeah, it's probably Todd Combs would be my guess given that his background is in financials and it's kind of a smaller position. It seems like Buffett wouldn't really waste his time with it, but maybe uh, either way, I think Buffett probably has a good idea of everything they own. So it doesn't really surprise maybe. me too much. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure He's, he getting looks old. He's getting old though. I think he kind of trusts those, those guys for a reason, right? He's a big delegator when he wants to yeah. be. I He's got time enjoy hands, though. though. <laughs> I enjoy for the clickbait articles that they sold apple so that's nice for some clicks some good bonuses when writing writing stuff out there yeah, yeah. i want to talk about dorsey asset management because we can do that next yeah this i think it's kind of fascinating i want to get your takes on some of these things so they pat dorsey he was kind of important in forming like the morning star moat rating that's kind of where he got his start, his career, and then he ended up starting his own fund, I want to say, in kind of the 2015 timeframe. And it's Dorsey Asset Management. And they put out this 
presentation. I don't know when this was, but they put out this presentation called Competitive Advantage and Capital Allocation. And he says the three things he looks for in an investment are economic moats. I think everyone says that, at least the long-term quality investors. Runways for reinvestment. I think that's a big part that maybe is less talked about. And superior capital allocation. And that's kind of boilerplate standard for people that are looking for long-term investments. But he goes into what creates a moat. And he says the primary test of an economic moat is pricing power, generally created by intangible assets, so brands, patents, licenses, switching costs, network effects, and cost advantages. Do you think there's any other ones you can think of that create a moat? Okay, so let me go through them again. Intangible assets, which that could be either your brand or government regulation through patents, licenses, whatever. Switching yeah, costs. Yeah, think like a Coca-Cola, it, it provides, it's a lower lower cost of marketing. People know who you are. You don't have to spend quite as much. It's, uh, I think that's what he's referencing when he talks about brands. Yeah, but there's also in that patents and licenses. So Verisign, I, I would say, is yeah. also within that category. Switching costs. I agree. Network effects, cost advantages. And these are economic modes. So it's not necessarily like you could say there's a competitive advantage for a company given its culture. People would, we talked about Berkshire already this episode. People would make that argument for Berkshire Hathaway. And I think we would argue for maybe some other companies out there that have a culture of competitive advantage. But from an economic perspective, I think these are the big four you want to focus on. And I think now, I believe I looked at this a couple of years ago because this is old. I think he did this as well at a, as a, Google, at a Google talk 10 years ago or something like that, but it's still relevant you know, today. When I'm looking at a company, I, I like to ask, is there one of these present? And ideally, for something in my portfolio where I'm looking at it, I mean, ideally for something that I want to hold for a long time, it has multiple of these because if you only have one of these competitive advantages, well, you could wake up one morning and the entire thesis could be broken because of brand impairment for various reasons. Think Bud Light this summer, or excuse me, last year, although they seem to have recovered with that a bit or the government license gets lost or the cost advantage goes away. But if you have multiple of them, which, you know, it's a company that may not be my favorite stock at the moment, but obviously has done well over the long term. Apple seems to have all would you say all four? Yeah. Cost I think advantage, I could argue all four. Probably. I guess I don't really know the supply chain I'd, for Apple that well, I would assume they get some scale advantages with their suppliers just well, they, they get, get cheaper T sourcing. TSMC yeah, they, they Apple gets priority from TSMC even over Nvidia. So, yeah. Oh. I think maybe their network effects maybe their weakest, but probably with a few of these for the few that are in um, so the iMessage iMessage Apple Pay a little bit 
but not, App Store. It's, not, it's probably their App Store. Yeah, it's probably their weakest, but still, still there. So I think that's a good example of you. Yeah, that's probably all priced in today. I would say maybe not. But, but they do possess probably all of them, yeah. All four of them. Microsoft maybe as well. Maybe all of Big Tech has at least like two to three of these. Here's the other one. Maybe, yeah. maybe one company that I guess is falling away from Big Tech. Starts with a T. Did you, did you notice NVIDIA larger than Google? Yeah. As of this morning. That's pretty wild. I'm going to say something and you can say whether you agree or disagree. Big time Cisco systems, 1999, 2000 vibes here. 2009, is that what you said? Sorry, sir. 1999 and 2000 vibes. Sure. I mean, from what I've heard, yes, but we were like five years old, so I don't think we have a real sense of what was what the sentiment was at the time, but it sounds like based on everyone that kind of experienced it as an investor that we've spoke to, it was very similar. Yes. I want to go through some of the other things that he talks about because I thought this was a cool presentation. He says, what's not a moat? He says, dominant market share is not a moat. So he gives examples of companies that had high absolute market share, uh, General Motors, Dell. Those are two. Technology is not a moat. He says, commoditization and disruption are inevitable absent customer lock-in talks about GoPro and Fitbit as good examples. I think those have both aged pretty well, those takes. The other one here is hot products. Uh, and this, I like this because, I mean, he's, he's right. We see it all the time. Uh, Crocs, maybe uh, Celsius. It's not saying you they're going to be bad investments, but they're not necessarily defensible just because it's a hot product. He says they can generate high returns for a short period of time, but sustainable returns make a moat. I like that. And then the last slide on this is actually a quote from Bill Miller, I believe. He says, turn off your laptops. That's like the title of the slide. And in quotes, it says, all of the information is in the past, but all of the value is in the future. Quantitative data is often priced efficiently. Qualitative insight is less efficiently priced. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. It's, yeah. that's, I've noticed since we stopped managing the fund and just kind of investing on our own, I look at everything, even though we, we looked at everything with a pretty long horizon. I think my horizon expanded a little bit now because there's no one to report to. There's no one to, you don't have to write this stuff up. You don't have to have a reason to have a starter position or a reason to have something. You can just invest in something and see how it progresses and then add over time. And it, to me, I'm really starting to weigh the qualitative insights a lot more than maybe when we were running the fund. I'm, yeah, the older I less... get, the more I want to become David Gardner. <laughs> yeah, that also might be the all-time highest talking to you, but I That's go true. through that as well. There's less urgency, yes, and there's less barriers to making an investment, which is a good and a bad thing, I would say. There's probably positives to, and negatives to both. I want, it's not philosophies, but... Uh, it's not strategy. I can't think of the proper word, but I think listeners understand. Yes, I try to think of the qualitative stuff as well. If you're only 
book. Anyone can run a factor strategy. Well, not anyone. Anyone can set one up. Uh, you know, there's psychological stuff there. There's emotional intelligence, all that good stuff. But if you're going to buy individual stocks, 10 to 12, maybe, you know, even more, even less, there has to be some sort of qualitative insight if you are an individual. I'd say the, you know, Celsius, you mentioned that being one of the top stocks of the last five to 10 years, as someone on the old Twitter machine said, the premier growth stock at the moment. You said it doesn't really have an economic moat. I'd say probably right or an established moat, but it's one that could have an emerging brand moat, emerging, uh, not network effects or switching costs, but maybe emerging cost advantage, just given the Pepsi partnership. But uh, that obviously, that's not why the stock has done well. I think for anyone that looked at it five, 10 years ago, maybe not 10 years ago, but they could have seen the strategy. They could have seen it popping up at gyms. You could have said, okay, I can investigate this. There's a lot of momentum here. This is something I can understand. Oh, maybe I'll take a, take a swing here. And there's some, you know, a lot of people could have made arguments against that at the time, but it ended up working out. And I'd say another way is looking at management for the qualitative insights where I remember we covered Rocket Lab. I've been looking at them again, and the company is losing money, <laughs> and it's in a tough industry. But I came away really impressed with the management team and how well they've executed so far. And I, for some reason, I, I I just believe that they can be the second player there. I, I've not I haven't bought the stock, but it's one of those we typically avoid the hyper growth unprofitable companies that are kind of high risk, high reward. But that's the one that for some reason I'm coming back to again and again. Um, if I was forced to buy a high growth, high risk, you know, excuse me, high risk, high reward stock that may not have a high likelihood of succeeding, but could be a hundred bigger rocket lab. It feels attractive to me because I feel like I have some sort of qualitative insight that this management team is better than almost every other space economy startup out there but does that make sense or am i kind of talking nonsense there is that what you think dorsey was trying to get at here yeah yeah potentially i mean there's i was looking through some of pat dorsey's old holdings and kind of what he's gone through over time and a lot of them are moats that aren't quite defined yet so I don't know, maybe you could call them like emerging moats potentially, but you look through, and this is another example of how just buying and holding quality businesses, like the art of not selling, how it can ultimately drive your performance in the long run. He has had a lot of companies that I don't think worked out very well for him. He's owned PayPal. I don't know how well he's done on eBay. He's owned Upwork. Uh, I'm fascinated why. Uh, I'm fascinated why he owns SmartSheet. Yeah, he owns SmartSheet. He's owned. I'm trying to look at some of the other ones here. Semrush Holdings, kind of a recent IPO. He owned Yelp, Poshmark, Chegg, and he actually talked about Chegg on a podcast publicly and. I kind of fell for this too. It was a good thesis. 
there was some brand value with Chegg. They had adoption from a lot of college students and it has just really the bowl case has not materialized but he's had all these losers and yet having meta or formerly facebook at 20 percent of his portfolio from the it says q4 of 2016 it might have been even earlier has just crushed google has been another huge holding for him wix uh, hasn't been a huge winner, I don't think, for him, but he doubled down on all of these things throughout 2022 when they were kind of at their lows. He really doubled down. And so I just, I think some of my takeaways when I look at Pat Dorsey's portfolio is some of the best ideas you already own. Don't sell your winners. Just don't sell in general. And don't be afraid to trim the weeds when they're not working out because that's kind of what he's done. And and I guess I he his performance isn't public, but I would guess given that Alphabet and Meta have basically been the two largest holdings for him, he's probably outperformed the market. So Yeah, hard to tell, but I agree. I think... It's interesting to look at a portfolio where it's focused on moats, it's focused on letting your winners ride, but when you maybe try to find something that's an emerging moat and it doesn't work out, say something like Poshmark, you can't be afraid to just trim your losses, get out of there, find something new. Not everything's going to be a home run. And every strategy is different. We have a good comment here from Michael. says, an underrated economic moat is asset turnover moats. Low margin, high asset turnover businesses like the gas stations are supremely underrated in my opinion. I think he's also referring to here maybe the same moat that Costco has. Walmart, right? stack it high, sell it fast, sell it often. Yeah, I think I think that could be categorized as cost advantage, but a specific one, right? I put that in yeah. the cost advantage category, but that's, that's one cost that I think advantage. Is, yeah, that's one that's important to highlight. There's within it's all kind of, of that these, scale economy shared idea that you're you have a cost advantage and you're driving lower prices with it, which drives traffic, which drives further cost advantage. It seems like that's kind of what he's getting at. Yeah. I think with all of these, I mean, the first one he lists here, intangible assets, there's three different kinds, brands, patents, and licenses. But within switching costs, network effects, and cost advantages, there are all these different subsets that can show up in different ways. And I think finding unique moats that are within, fit within these categories, because because almost all of them fit within these categories, but something that's a little different than before. I'm trying to think of a new company. It's hard. It's, it's hard to come up with on the fly, but yeah. I think that that can be a way to to find a good investment too. Yes, he said referring similar to Costco. Lots of questions here. Yeah, a lot of questions. I see one about Airbnb. Maybe we can take that. The sure. did you take a look at the quarter for them? I did. Solid, but little little decel. I liked the supply growth. I mm -hmm. am interested to see what they're going to do with the expansion products because I'm a little bit worried they're getting caught up in the AI mumbo jumbo, but I also think there is some potential for them to build a good product there. I would hope they invest more in the experiences because that 
just seems like a really, really great combination for them, especially with the growth of Viator, which is just plastering advertisements at the moment. They must have gotten a good VC round. Uh, but yeah, so I'd say the supply growth was good. Uh, the international growth was good. But I am a little bit worried about the slow, the deceleration in growth. Although I think that was a bit purposeful because they tried to lower their average daily rates a bit. Um, I think they bragged that either foreign exchange or inflation adjusted, their average daily rate was down 2%, while hotels are up 9%. So I think they're kind of forcing themselves to grow a little slower just to make sure their customers are happy. But what were your thoughts on the quarter? I thought it was good. I think you're right. It's I don't like when companies just kind of follow the trend. We saw this with Spotify a lot where it's like the like I saw Chesky's comments around AI and I just don't really think people are going to be using it that much. In, in these sort of scenarios, like booking.com, for example, talked about we're building out this AI where it's like you're literally your AI travel agent. You could say like, give me, plan me a vacation that's, you know, uh, to the Midwest or to South America that's under this much per night. And it's like, I just... Maybe people do that just to mess around with it, but is it really worth the effort? Because I don't think anyone's booking yeah. something like that. You can, yeah, I I, th I think I agree. It only takes you maybe a minute to click through things and do that. It could be a fun novelty, but I don't know how much different value it provides because all those variables I can filter out through either booking or Airbnb's website. One, yeah, when I'm looking specifically at those AI things, I'm, I kind of think you're not in need of public investment. I don't think you need to talk about the product roadmap that much until it actually shows up. But we'll see. Specifically on Airbnb. Chesky um, is super charismatic, which is kind of concerning because <laughs> it makes me want to invest. Yeah. And okay, I, well, shouldn't the be, I shouldn't be investing purely because of someone's charisma. The question here is, and maybe this can be a good time to talk about our halfway through ad as we are exactly halfway through on the recording here 30 minutes with our friends at FinChat Ryan at what price would you be interested in Airbnb you can maybe look at some of their final old KPIs over there yeah I don't want to click around while I'm talking about FinChat so if you want to share your screen and show Airbnb feel free but uh, okay, okay I'll try to pull it up yeah let's talk about our friends at FinChat real quick FinChat is the sort of all-in-one stock research platform. If you're a fundamental investor, they have financial data on 50,000 plus companies, both active and inactive, where it, you get all the standard data. So income statement, balance sheet, uh, cash flow statement, and then they kind of go above and beyond with some of that stuff. So they've got valuation ratios, uh, like net operating profit after tax. They've got some metrics that aren't in your typical income statement. Uh, and then they've got segment and KPI data, KPI data on more than 1500 stocks. So whether you want to look at Airbnb's average daily rate and how that's progressed over the last 12 quarters or over the last, I guess it would be what, four years since IPO, six years. Um, or you want to look at Amazon's AWS revenue, Match Group's paying users, 
really, I could come up with a new KPI every time we do this ad because it really is a lot of value. I recently looked at PayPal's take rate and got a lot of flack for it, which I was just kind of on the old Twitter machine. That's besides the point, but they've really got all this granular segment and KPI data that goes back uh, at least 10 plus years if the company's been around that long. So I recommend checking it out. Uh, it's free to use, but if you want to do or upgrade to a paid plan, which gives you a lot of kind of quality of life benefits, more years of data and access to a bunch of more features, use our link that's finchat.io slash chitchat and you'll get 25% off any paid plans. That's finchat.io slash chitchat. The link will also be in our show notes. Brett, you're showing the uh, Airbnb average daily rate here. Is that what I'm looking at? That is correct. And what I'm seeing is the daily rate hasn't really changed and actually is down slightly from March 2021. Now, I don't know how much this tells us, but it gives me confidence that the company can keep growing because they've been able to grow at a double your revenue at a double digit rate while purposefully trying to keep the daily rate low in spite of high inflation around the world. Now the question comes back to, and I'm not going to share this one because it's just the ratios. We're looking here at and again you can look at earnings yield and price to earnings a lot differently. I'm maybe going to just do an EV to EBIT. Mm, no, that's not the best one because they've had some weird funky stuff in there. Let's just look at the price to earnings. We're at about 20, it says 20. Although they I had think some, yeah, they, they had, had some, some gap stuff. Or, that's yeah, like, yeah. I, <laughs> Airbnb's a little tough to value because the free cash flow is kind of bullshit. And because of the working capital advantage. So I guess you look at it on like an adjusted EBIT basis, mm -hmm. maybe, but they earn maybe. interest on the, on the cash that the merch, uh, the customers pay them before they pay out the merchant. So it's like, you don't want to look on it. EBIT maybe isn't the right metric because the interest is real. Yeah. we got a question here that says, isn't part of the daily rate not growing for Airbnb international growth, international is lower price generally possibly. Yeah. That can, that can be affecting it as well. But I think I don't have the data in front of me, but I believe Airbnb in the United States, the daily rates not growing that quickly either. What price though would you buy? I, I don't know. Let's say it's a it's a good amount lower than here because I want a decent discount if I'm buying something. Um, yeah, I think what's interesting is one where I think their moat can expand over the next few years is that uh, someone on the comments reminded me the they got more people going directly to the app to book. Same with booking, but that helps both of those companies individually. Second, they continue to talk about how the supply joining their platform is unique and that they even got a question from it on the conference call. They were like, hey, a lot of the competitors out there are bragging about getting supply on, getting you know competitive supply on there. And they're saying, look, we're not seeing that in the data. Cross-listing is only on professional listings, which are a small amount of the listing. So I think if they keep growing supply of unique supply around the world, that's just a good way to track the mode expansion. But I, I don't think I'm buying today. Let me just pull up the market cap because I know they earn about a couple billion a year. 
Yeah, having had Market caps a hundred exactly a hundred billion. So we're looking at I'd say low thirties earnings ratio, maybe forward. You could get it down to the high twenties. I don't think that's cheap. I'd rather buy it at twenty times earnings. Yeah. I would be comfortable buying here, but I think there's better opportunities available today. The you really do have to look at this with quite the long-term approach because there can be such variability or volatility, I should say, in average daily rates potentially, or just travel in general. I think ultimately every quarter, the most important thing to look at is just supply. What happened to supply? How many listings do they have on the platform? Is it growing? Every listing that they add to their platform that is not added on other platforms is their moat expanding. And yeah. It seems like they continue to do that. Having had some time since looking at booking holdings, I really think I would buy Airbnb before I bought booking. I know it's That's a lot insane. cheaper. Yeah. But this is a better management team, in my opinion. And I don't know if it's indicative of what could happen to booking.com, but if you look at the way booking managed open table, they destroyed a network effect. Like they destroyed a good business by gouging the restaurants and not providing the level of service that was needed. It seems like booking.com is maybe a little easier to run. The network effect is much larger, but I don't know. It just kind of concerns me the way that they failed to take care of open table when it had lots of market share five years ago and was becoming a dominant player in a lot of cities. And now they've just been kind of eaten away by Resi and some of the other services. So I don't know. Kind of concerning. I like, yeah. I like that Airbnb is not very acquisitive. They built a lot of stuff organically. They bought some AI company and we're bragging about the guy made it was the founder of Siri, but they seem to be doing aqua hires for a small amount, you know, relatively probably like $50 million, but still a small amount relatively for them. We got a comment here about overpriced cleaning fees and poor experiences. Um, and not, not from the experiences category that they're trying to build up, but from, I'm assuming, a stay. Yes, that's a concern that people have, but I would say that the cleaning fees has largely been fixed. They talked about this on the call where a lot of people are, when they change the, to the total price display, people have found that irrelevant now. So I think that's fixed generally. Because you can just, it kind of, I think they said a third of people stopped even charging cleaning fees and just made it a total cost going forward. But I agree that having poor supply could be the one concern when you're talking about tracking supply growth, which I think is important. But you don't want a bunch of shady, low reviews, bad experiences for people on there, right? You want to make sure the customer experience is strong. So that'd be the one concern to also track. Don't know how exactly to track that. They prioritize the host. They, they do. Yeah. That, yeah. And I think so, that's probably the right way to go if you're running the business. It sucks because I've had some bad experiences as well and it's not always fun, but it's if you're running this business, sometimes you have to prioritize a certain side of the network to really help it flourish. And in Airbnb's case, it seems like the right thing to do to prioritize hosts. Okay, we have one more question that I want to hit that I think will be really fun, but 
We also want to hit some of the, I think I have some fun topics as well listed here, some winners and losers from the week. This is a question from Fake Alias. Thank you for the great one. Thoughts on only buying emerging companies after they've proven themselves. Personally, I'd rather buy a growing company after 100% run-up due to a proven track record than make the gamble. Yeah, I think that's interesting where if you looked at Celsius today, obviously the stock looks like it's trading at a very you know high valuation. It's still growing quickly, but it's been... If you looked at the initial bump when they got all momentum in their first year starting to gain market share in the energy drink space in North America, you know, the stock would have been up 100%, but there was still a chance to do, to get like a 20 bagger if you understood, right? Just because the product's been growing and you can see the momentum, it's, I think, it's I think tough. Celsius it's is a dangerous comparison because that's one that where it was a hot product that worked i think there's a lot of hot products that did not work that were copied and replaced by incumbents yeah and i think the key is that celsius has an emerging brand i think that's the key where you look at something like crocs maybe it has an emerging brand but that's one i'd be less confident in or some of these apparel brands out there that seem to cycle through i remember seeing some viral tweets lately about how abercrombie and fitch has come back from the dead Ah, could i predict that i have no clue yeah there's a little bit of brand there but it's a lot different than i don't know Allbirds was a growing brand black rifle coffee was a growing brand yeah you name it yeah there's a lot of these businesses that were they became really hot products that maybe you can just say i don't do apparel i don't care if it's a hot product, I just don't touch apparel. It's a little bit different when you have a truly addictive product. I think we see that with Zen. We've seen that now with Celsius. You saw that in the early days with Monster, where if you can actually build some level of addiction, like with the caffeine or the nicotine, yeah. uh, daily and daily habit, it helps. It's a switching cost. Yeah. The, it, yes. Uh, exactly. And. I think it's a fine line, but it's one of those where it it can feel daunting or you can feel like, man, am I being an idiot for buying something that's up 100%? But I think Fake Alias is right here where it's, it's it can be a crapshoot to try to identify like Celsius maybe in 2015 when you're like, okay, I think it, it'd be impossible to say in 2016, 2017, 2018, this thing is going to catch fire. You have no reason to be thinking that. But after it catches fire, maybe there's a good risk reward there. Now, Celsius wasn't guaranteed to work, but I think that makes sense. And yeah, if you look at the stock price, look, it wasn't, it's not like yeah. it wasn't an easy button. Okay, this is the easiest investment ever, but it was high risk, high reward bet that I think was smart to make at the time. I encourage people to look back, go just go to Google and look up Celsius original can and look at some of the images and tell me that you would look at those and think like, oh, this is going to be a $15 billion company when it was delisted and Costco delisted them as a supplier. It's like, it would have been very tough, I think, to make that bet. I... I think you're right in the sense that it's I'd be more comfortable investing fake aliases right here where I'd be more comfortable investing after there's some proof that it can be 
sustainable as opposed to pre you might not get pre-growth you might get better upside if you go pre-growth but i think you're gonna have a lot more misses i agree okay let's hit some other topics i want to have hit my winners and losers are you ready to talk about our favorite guy sam altman because he has some more plans apparently yeah let's go okay so alphabet as we're recording this down two and a half percent today on news that open ai is going to launch a search engine here's a quote from the business insider article i think to be fair first reported by the information quote the new product may be partly powered by microsoft search engine bing per the report microsoft is the biggest investor in open ai pumping in billions quote the development puts open ai into more direct competition with google search and follows microsoft's attempt to boost its bing search engine with the AI company's tech. I'm very confused here because you have Microsoft Azure basically giving OpenAI the credits and powering their ChatGPT, and then you have ChatGPT powering Bing, and now Bing is going to be powering OpenAI Search. It, it seems a bit crazy to me. I also have, the same day this came out, which maybe wasn't a coincidence, there is a new Gemini 1.5 from Google. And some people were posting about this. They were like, you know, there's a great follow out there called Alpha Betting. Uh, it's a Twitter account really focused on Alphabet and AI. It's kind of a strict account there. You can get a lot of good information. Uh, he said, you know, Google's down 2.5% on news of a Bing rebrand when this sentence is in their latest Gemini 1.5 technical report is hilarious. He said 10 million tokens. And I was like, please explain this to me like I'm five because I did not know what this meant. And he said 10 million tokens, massive leap in current abilities, opens the possibilities to do much more with data. ADX, the current GPT-4 max context window with the ability to do video, audio, and text. I just responded, thumbs up. I have no idea what's going on, but glad the people that know this industry think Alphabet's in the lead. All right. Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea what that means. 10 million tokens. I think we're, we're back, I guess. Alphabet's good. The, yeah, I don't understand the... If Google sells off because of this, we have seen this story before. I think that is an opportunity to buy a toll road on the world's information. and. I stand by the saying that if Google doesn't have a moat, no digital company has a moat. Uh, so I, I find it weird that this is it's selling off because of this. I don't think people understand where Google's moat comes from. It comes from Chrome. We've talked about this a hundred times. It comes from Chrome. It comes from Android. It comes from Gmail. It comes from Drive. It comes from everything on top of search that gets you conveniently in general. Yeah. Yeah, unless there's open an AI. ecosystem lock-in, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the whole thing. Okay. Also, I think this came out right after we finished recording last week. I don't think we talked about it, but maybe if we did, we can talk about it again. Now, I'm going to also pull up a tweet. Okay, load, load, load. Sam Altman, founder of OpenAI, seems to be in the news every day is reportedly looking to raise $7 trillion to reshape the chips and AI industry. Now, there was this 
I'm not going to say who it was. I'm sure it's a very smart person. They got tons of followers on the old Twitter machine. It says, Sam Altman is looking to raise $7 trillion or nearly 10% of global GDP for an AI chip company. It's hard to comprehend, but no person would even consider this unless they achieve something that will fundamentally reshape the entire world. And then this last part, sarcastic. And people think AI is in a bubble. LOL. I would recommend these people to read some financial history. Now, I don't know much about AI, but we both, I don't know, are nerds about financial history, market history, business history, along with, I think, a lot of listeners here. And this is the telltale sign of a bubble. Like, that is like textbook bubble signs. Now, it's not necessarily to say that this is a bubble, but doesn't mean it. it it means it's like it's a sign that it is more than it isn't thoughts there yeah no i think it's a bubble i think to be honest i kind of tune out sam altman now i just kind of it's nothing against the guy i've, I've heard him speak before he seems like fine it's just all the news around him i just kind of don't pay that much attention i don't think anything he's doing affects my investments that much it might affect the prices. Like I, I don't invest in Google, but I would certainly be open to it at the right price. So it's I just kind of don't. I, as soon as I hear the name Sam Altman, I kind of tune it out because it feels like there's always news, but the impact on my actual day-to-day -day work life and my routines hasn't changed and it doesn't really impact my investments. So I say... Sam Altman, if he gets more and more capital, that's fine. Yes, I would agree. We are probably closer closer to a bubble than the next computing generation or whatever. I, hey, look, as an individual, I'm rooting for Sam Altman to raise a trillion dollars from the Middle East Sovereign Wealth Funds and create an incredible consumer surplus, but doesn't mean that businesses are going to create shareholder value. Like, There's a difference between creating consumer surplus and actually creating shareholder value. I wonder what WorldCoin is up to. Remember that? Oh, I follow them on Twitter. They tweet stuff about progress and initiatives. It's classic crypto stuff. It, yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. uh, Biden. Laser eyes. You see that? I don't know. Yeah, something. That was a very confusing tweet. It was. I, I wonder if he knew what it I assume he didn't tweet it, but. Yeah, he posted a picture of himself with laser eyes, and I think I didn't it know had, he had to do with a joke about the conspiracy theories about the Super Bowl, which I think that's the conspiracy theories we want people to do: keep them fun, keep them. It wasn't. Them it, wasn't it didn't have to do with like Bitcoin, or I don't I think so. But that's Bitcoin. what it made it confusing because the timing was about the Super Bowl and how they said that they were rigging. You know, the government was rigging it for the Chiefs because of Taylor Swift or some weird reason, which I think is. Oh, yeah, absurd, right, but it's also, that's a fun conspiracy theory to have. Let's, you know, those are, you know, not dangerous, I don't think. <laughs> I thought it was but Bitcoin related. No, no, it wasn't. But let's move to a loser of mine for the week. I have Apple, but with a question mark. I'm curious mm -hmm. your thoughts here. Apparently, people are already returning their Apple Vision Pros. Now, this is within a window where you can do it for free for Apple within like a 14 day. Um, free trial on all the products, you can return it without you know any damage and get all your money back. Here's the quote. 
Comfort is among the most cited reason for returns. People have said the headset gives them headaches and triggers motion sickness. The weight of the device and the fact that most of it is front-loaded has been another complaint. Uh, the Verge product manager told me that he thought the device led to a burst blood vessel in his eye. At least one other person noted they had a similar experience with redness. To be fair, uh, parentheses, VR headset users have anecdotally reported dry eyes and redness for years. Oh, yeah, well. I think the whole category is, it's not there yet. It hasn't been here for 30 years. People have tried to push these onto people, and I think it's not there yet. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, Mark Zuckerberg released a video yesterday that was like just kind of tarnishing the product. Apple Vision Pro, he's like, I think we have a better product. It's like, Mark, that's awesome. And it's nice to see that you're going at them head on, but you have a better pointless product and you're spending more to do it. You, I just, it feels like a waste of money for both companies. And at least in Apple, you don't really see it in the income statement. Yeah. Well, to be fair, now you don't see it in the income statement for Meta. Maybe you do see it in the income statement for Apple because they don't really disclose all this stuff. I would like to know how much they estimate went into Vision Pro development. That would be fascinating because they never never tell us. Meta's been a little more forthright about it. But, I mean, the name change, all of it. They've they've gone deeper into this, and they're like, "We're winning." It's like it still seems like a pointless (laughs) effort. Yeah, I know. It's like we're winning the. I don't. I don't know. Something weird. Something useless. Okay. Memes are fun. The memes are fun, but I don't see myself ever having one. I can say it was very different when mobile came out when mobile was first starting the iPhone, it's like, it was obvious every, that it would be everyone useful. wanted one and it was useful. And I just yeah. don't see the real world application for me. Yeah. Well, for, for most people. Yeah. Okay. I have four topics that eh, some are more serious than others. I got, and you can choose with one we do first. We got seven minutes. Herbal life. Topgolf Callaway, EA, Electronic Arts, or Shopify and their impressive KPIs? Callaway. Okay. I think that's a fun choice. You Well, there's two things. One, they invented the term embedded cash flow that apparently takes out all CapEx 
interesting. Sounds sounds a lot more useful than it is. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't show up on the balance sheet, but trust us. But that's besides the point. That's kind of a joke. Their same store sales at Top Golf are, I think, down. We're down three percent while consumer spending is booming. I think, and they're guiding for one flat growth, flat same venue sales. I worry how like the consumer spending is incredible right now. What what happens if that turns sour? I I worry. I flipped entirely on this this business. I used to be pretty bullish, and now I, I don't. I, I honestly, yeah. we had a question here about it, shorting it, uh, shorting stocks. Sometimes when you flip on like a company, you're like, man, I don't really want to own this anymore. It's not on my watch list. I don't short, but that's what a lot of ex, you know experts, not experts, people that have you know good experience short selling say that's an indicator that something might be a good short because you already know it well and you can understand what's going wrong. But curious your thoughts on Top Golf. Did you look at the quarter? I didn't look at the quarter. I saw what you posted about embedded cash flow and this is one where i'm really glad we ended up staying out of it the i was pretty convinced that top golf was differentiated it was an idiosyncratic business it was unique brand that was hard to replicate good returns on paper for each venue however the two things that concerned me were the earnings weren't showing up. Gosh, that bubble keeps whatever. There's a graphic showing up for anyone listening yeah, right yeah. now. You always Every time say I do a gonna... thumbs up. It... <laughs> you always say anyway. you're gonna change your settings, but you forget. Yeah. Uh the earnings weren't showing up despite them talking about all these adjusted figures. And management was a bit of a red flag. And it just felt like they were doing stuff that was maybe a little promotional. They were there was some insider buying that they talked about, but it was very small. And I just, this was proof when they said our embedded cash flow, which is like the twin brother of adjusted EBITDA, the, it's like a, they are who we thought they were. They, they don't measure the business the way us as shareholders do. And for me, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Short I don't know if I short it. But... Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't short anything. So take any, like, if I have a question, what would you short? It's it's kind of nonsensical because I, I would never actually do it. Well, never say never. I would not at the moment. I think the return on stress is not for there for me as an individual investor. But yeah, it's an interesting one. Okay. I want to hit another topic. What are the other ones do you like? You know who I wanted to talk about for a little bit? I did a little bit of a profile on this guy. Okay. The I'll just go quickly through it. There's a guy named Joseph Rosenfield. He was a friend of Buffett's. And Jason Zweig, the famous financial journalist, once wrote an article titled The Best Investor You've Never Heard Of. And it's about this Joe Rosenfield guy. Wow, we stole him. Wow, did we did we steal his title for the Lou the Lou? Everyone's one? <laughs> everyone's used that. The uh but this this guy was he took uh he he was the head of the investment committee for Grinnell College, which is like a tiny fifteen hundred student school in Iowa. And 
they now it took went from their endowment went from eleven million dollars to just over a billion dollars. Now it's two and a half billion, which is insane for a fifteen hundred person school. Um, I recommend looking up the article from Jason Zweig. I'll kind of leave it there. He, uh, very unique guy, just bought and hold, bought and held things for a long time, uh, including Berkshire. So go ahead, look him up. Best investor you've never heard of, Joe Rosenfield. I'll leave it there because I know we're running up on time. Yeah, we can go, yeah, a little slightly long. I have one more question for you, but I will say, People seem to enjoy our investor overview uh, episodes where we kind of look at a longstanding investor and see how they've done so well. And there's plenty of them out there. Tell us if you really enjoy these episodes, those type of episodes. And what we're trying to do, plan is to do maybe like five or six for the year. So I think that could be fun. But I wanted to ask you, EA just announced that the college football game is coming this summer, so next fiscal year. Take two has announced the GTA 5 will be coming, I think, next fiscal year as well, but maybe the one after. Nintendo Switch might be coming out. At the right price, do you like these companies, or are you still kind of out on the gaming ones? Because it seems like there's durability there in the brands, but... As you've talked about a lot, the growth is a concern. I'm a hater on EA. I don't like that. I think a lot of their earnings growth over the last decade has just them. It's been them being well positioned in an industry that's gotten more asset light or less costly, right? The industry has moved to online game sales, which has been a huge driver of their gross margins. I think their gross margins are, have doubled in the last decade. So they just kind of benefited from that. I think Andrew Wilson hits his bonuses every year and gets paid $30 million annually, and there doesn't seem to be real improvement in the business. FIFA continues to grow. FC, yeah, it continues to grow. Players, but I'm just... I'm not really seeing it in the income statement, so I don't like them. Take two, it's a possibility. That one seems like it's more you get these big development cycles where you just have to hold through like multi multi-year periods where earnings aren't gonna show up and it's just gonna you really have to be a believer in GTA six, which I think it's hard not to be because they hit every time they produce one. Um, and they're doing Nintendo. Florida, they're basically having the whole thing be Florida plus Florida man stuff, all the crazy things plus the history of you know crime, whatever syndicates, crime organizations in that city in Miami, which seems like an impossible video game to fail at if you spend ten years building it. Yeah, I can maybe on take two, but I'm not really that interested to be honest. The Nintendo would be the one of the three that I'd be most inclined to buy. I think I so. still don't own it though. I, I just haven't touched it. I, I don't not sure what's holding me back, but I, I don't think, know. Yeah, same with Nintendo. I think it's just for me, it's not on the top of my watch list at the moment, as we talked about in actually that show that came out yesterday before the podcast came out on Wednesday. It's called Five Stocks. We own a little teaser 
Nintendo was one of them. Or excuse me, five stocks we would buy. So it's on the watch list. Got a comment here that says Sega is underrated and undervalued. That's interesting. Have never looked at them before. Maybe that's the reason why. It's because no one's really heard of them. And they've. I didn't even know they still were cooking out there. But yeah, I think that maybe Sonic, is similar to right. Don't they own Sonic? Yeah, they have. They used to be a game hardware maker similar to Nintendo, and now they have. They still, I guess, make some of the games. But that's all I, I know. They've done running up on Sonic time. movies. Or, they did, yeah. I think they like a similar expansion of the IP strategy stuff like that. Could be a fun one to study. All right, thank you, for Fake Alias, for sending that. But we got to wrap up here. Went a little long. Free two minutes there for everyone. I hope, hope you enjoyed it, but let's hit the disclosure. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show was not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan, I, or any podcast guest may hold securities discussed in this podcast, may have held them in the past, and may buy, sell, or hold them in the future. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. 